Here we go. Season 7. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more. There is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the Gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we're calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. January 15th, 2020. This is Messiah Matters number 285. Wishing Tacoma was getting as much snow as Spokane. My name is Caleb Hegg. Yeah, I'm Rob Vanoff. Just call me the the snow shoveling fool. <laughs> uh, Man, yes. I've shoveled my driveway like so many times. Because <laughs> it's it's easier to do when it's the snow's light, you know, and it Oh man, there's you, so much snow. You need a snowblower. You know, Adam. I need the exercise. Adam Adam <laughs> Smith got a snowblower, and he can hit the people across the street with when he he can. That's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't send out an email today, so no one knows that this show's going on except for the 13 people in the chat room currently, which is fine. That's fine. 13. Yeah, we've been we have been so busy. It's unbelievable how busy we've been. I just, like I don't even know how to keep up, and I'm not keeping up. And and Caleb, you have to tell them that you had to turn off your space heater. I'm the freezing show, so now. You're, you're suffering. You're suffering for the kingdom, right? <laughs> now. No. <laughs> anyway, I was looking at our. Uh, by the way, we got um, our. Oh yeah, let's put our producers up. New producers have uh, come in. Thank you to all of our producers, and also our associate producers and our executive producers, and then also anyone who supports this show. <clears throat> By the way, speaking of which, supporting this show, we're going to try something new. What we're going to do is we recorded our prep session for this show. It wasn't very yeah, long. C- Caleb gets a phone call from Lakeisha in the middle of it. He's like, hold on. Did you edit that out? No. <laughs> so like you can even hear Caleb get a call. <laughs> uh, anyway, so basically it's just our converse- our pre-show conversation. So... Uh, from two days ago, I think. Yeah, was. and I don't know. You know, people need to tell me whether or not they like this or not. Because if they don't, that's fine. We won't do it again. But if people like the conversation in Messiah Matters more for our supporters, uh, then we will continue to do stuff like that. 
Okay. Um, let's just get this all out of the way. Comment line 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also send us an email, chegg at c-h-e-g-g at torahresource.com. And of course, uh, Torah Resource is the producer of this show. Go to Torah Resources and find all sorts of great stuff. We're completely redoing the site. And uh, the hope is to have the new site up in the next month, within the month. So this is one of the reasons that we are just so overloaded right now. I'm just unbelievably busy. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Um, producers. We have producers. And uh, nobody sent in a message. Out of all of our uh, exec- executive and associate producers, nobody sent me a message, which is fine. Uh, no, I was, they did. They didn't choose any audio clips. No audio clips. Nothing. So I figured, okay, well, I, you know, I can choose a couple of my favorites. Read your Bible as interpreted by experts. If you want to add glitter to that glue you're sniffing? That's fine, but don't dump your wackadoo all over us. Exactly. Um, do you have any favorite audio clips? <clears throat> uh, uh, oh my. Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm. I'd have to go back and look through them and. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I have a lot. The reason that these are in our our uh, sound clip uh, library is because I like them. The lie detector test determined that was a lie. <laughs> ah, sorry. Uh, can, can I do one more? Let's do. Well, actually, let me do two more. <laughs> we do not get a lot of humor here, and when we do, it's wonderful. I'm a Catholic which is yeah, the that's... best of all the religions, really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes. Uh, best rules. <laughs> the best rules and the best clothes. Awesome. That was a horrible movie. I, I ended up, I didn't even know what movie that was, and then it was on TV, apparently. I was, I was flipping through, and he was saying that line. And I was like, oh, this movie. And I started watching it. I turned it off. I was not impressed. <laughs> okay. Um... Let's see here. Let's. I suppose let's get into the show, right? People sure, have we heard 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 enough of us uh, gabbing. Okay, um, we got mm-hmm. a couple of things. Actually, Zane, who's in the uh, chat room right now, he sent us a couple of uh, emails. So, uh, and thank you, Zane, for those because they actually did help steer us in the right direction. Actually, every, everybody who sent us emails, we got one from Christina, we got one from Evelyn. Evelyn is in the chat room. And then we got uh, some from Zane as well. And then we also have a couple of comments that we found. Basically, I would, you know, I always feel like when we come into some of these shows, every once in a while I feel like, man, I'm so unprepared and like I can't understand how this show's going to go. And then we'll get done with it and I'll be like, yeah, that was okay. And then people will flood our email box with, that was the best show you ever did. <laughs> Anytime I like put in hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, people are like, eh, yeah, it was okay. Anyway, um, so basically I'm going to be resting on my teacher's expertise here for most of this. That's you, Rob. All right. Okay, so the Old Testament, quote unquote, Old Testament. Does Yeshua have the authority to change the Sinai covenant? Now this, okay, let's set this up a little bit better. Uh, this question obviously is a huge question within Christendom as a whole, 
Um, why? Well, because the mainstream Christian church from about the fourth century on, and even before that, basically said that certain laws in the Torah were done away with. And of course, the big ones today are the Sabbath, the kosher laws, and the festivals. Now, the Torah movement, as it is called by me, uh, has basically said, no, uh, we need to keep these as well. Now, there's other ramifications that come along with this. So, for instance, um, eschatology, what's going to happen in the end, whether or not there's going to be a third temple and whether or not there will be sin sacrifices in that temple or not. Obviously, these kind of things will stem from a, uh, a understanding of the Torah and whether or not certain laws have been changed or not. But ultimately, when we ultimately... Yeah, like what's different? In other words, it's like what's different now? You know, can we divide time helpfully in terms of like B.C. and A.D., right? I mean, like things like before Christ right, and A.D., which, of course, the year of our Lord. And so the idea is like was the world one way and then Yeshua came and resurrected and ascended and now the world is forever changed. Like there's a radical brand new thing that is not found in the prior timeline. Well, and let's be, let's be really clear here. You know, even in our new intro, I pulled clips from Rob and I talking about the new covenant. The idea for us, our belief is that you're not saved differently now than people were, than Abraham was saved. You know, Paul uses Abraham as the model of justification by faith alone, right? In Galatians, he talks about this is the gospel, which was preached to Abraham. Exactly. And so the point is, is that I don't see this huge change that so many other people see. Now, I think well, here, here, here's if, if I may, because I remember I didn't may. buy the book, but at, at SBL, I was looking at one of these new books by N.T. Wright. And it, and maybe you'll remember you might have even bought it, Caleb, I don't, or maybe your dad did. But it was on he's looking at the scientific inquiry of the Middle Ages and where science comes. Original science in Europe came from believers who believed that the creation was good, that it was made by God's intelligent design and that it was discoverable, that there were things discoverable of the study of the creation. Right. And N.T. Wright gets into that and how different ideologically subsequently built up against the idea that there was a, even ever a God, right? Um, but the point being is that in this book, he, like N.T. Wright does in other places, he makes the resurrection the central hermeneutic. So in other words, he'll say in a I'm paraphrasing what I would presume him to say. Without the resurrection of Yeshua, we have nothing. There's nothing to talk about. And because of that, and I think I had a short chat with with Dr. Chris Tilling also on the site, and and because he's been commissioned to write a big commentary on Second Corinthians, and it's the same thing. It's like uh, he made the point: if Yeshua is not alive and resurrected, then all this academic stuff is just a bunch of people echo chambering, you know, kind of thing. And the point is this, though. Okay, let's say I agree that that's true. The resurrection is central. But is the resurrection different for Abraham, who was before it, although he believed it? He knew that 
he knew about the rent. We learned that from um, in Hebrews. It says that he understood resurrection through Isaac, through the offering of Isaac. And it says that he received him as a type of, of resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> Um, also, Paul makes the same point in Romans 4. You could say at the end of Romans 4, Paul talks about how that Sarah was barren and beyond the years of right, beyond menopause. And Abraham was body was basically dead. And that God who calls to be what is not right can can um, bring Isaac. Right. He gave them a, a baby boy by by his power so that this point of Yeshua resurrecting as a reality. The question is, back to the, our original framing of this, is it different for Abraham than it is for us because we're on the other side of it? I would say it's not different because it is true that Yeshua would resurrect is no, is no different of a fact from the Father's perspective, 2000 BC, 1000 BC, 1000 AD, or 2080, right? And that's where we get into the, that it's not a time-bound question. But if I say it is time-bound, and the world was in darkness, and then God sent his son Yeshua, Yeshua came and resurrected and changed the world from there on out. And therefore, things that were in order before Yeshua's incarnation are just simply done away. They're shadows. They, they don't really um, have any... Uh, enduring significance in terms of God's expectation of holy living or anything like that, other than maybe some general moral outlines that you could it's, bring from. It's interesting. Am I tracking? With yeah, it's interesting to think of what the what the people, uh, you know, we are in history right now. So technically we're, you know, what do we think in the time period that we're in and what are people going to think in, you know, X amount of years? But when we think of someone like King David, right? What did David think of when he looked at the Exodus from Egypt? He's reading the Torah. He's reading the Exodus from Egypt. Does he just think it's redemption of Israel, the nation of Israel, from out from under Pharaoh and the, the false gods of Egypt? No, I don't think it he can't does. Because he gives a Torah. He, yeah, gives, exactly. he gives, this is, be holy because I'm holy. Walk with me. Right. And be perfect. Be like, be like Abraham. Right? I mean, the idea is learn to walk the walk of faith, which is a spiritually oriented, values of God's kingdom oriented perspective on creation. It sees creation as a created thing by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It affirms that he rested, that he made the world and he rested. So there's a, they learn the Shabbat in the wilderness which is tied to the six days of create, like they're well, learning to see the world differently. Okay. So now you, now you bring up a whole different thought pattern in terms of the question. And for those who might've just joined us, the question that has been asked is, does Yeshua have the authority to change the Sinai covenant? Now, here's the thing is that God is non-contradictory and uh, right. Terry in the, uh, in the chat room says, God does not change. This is a really interesting concept. The, the uh, fourth century deba uh, Trinitarian debates brought up the idea of God. God's does God change, and this is one of the reasons that they came to the conclusion. It was one of the first debate top points that they had on whether or not the Father had always had a Son, and the answer is no. Oh. God does not change, and therefore He's always been Father. Okay. <clears throat> With that said, 
does God's holiness change? So for instance, and this is a question I like to ask people every once in a while, if God finds something detestable, that is, it is an abomination. He calls it an abomination. Now that means it's detestable in his sight. It goes contrary to his holiness somehow. So for instance, the the kosher laws are seen as detestable. Now, there's multiple things that we can, there's multiple points that need to be spoken of here. And we'll get to the Sabbath in a few seconds. But when it comes to the kosher laws, you have throughout all your generations. So the question that we have, we, we have to ask ourselves is, can, if God says throughout all your generations, can Yeshua come, who is yod heh vav in the flesh, come and say, no, it's not throughout all your generations. It's only through some of your generations. So that's the first question. The second question that I'd have to ask is, if it is detestable in the sight of God to do something like eat shellfish, and then Yeshua comes, does God's holiness change where all of a sudden his holiness is not offended by the fact that people eat shellfish? Well, if God doesn't change, then how does his holiness holiness change? He says, be holy for I am holy. So to say that that Yeshua would come and say, so Mark 7 is going to be the place where everyone goes, right? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, there's uh, we've talked numerous times on this show about the the variant there, the and and the Greek language there. There's a reason that the KJV translated it thus purging all foods instead of thus Jesus declared all foods clean. You can read if you if you know any Greek at all, you can read the uh, the article that we have on Torah resource written by my father. But but the point is, is that if God doesn't change, and keep in mind, I think that it's very important. I'll throw this back to you in just a second. I know I've been talking for a long time, but keep in mind that one of the main tenets of Yeshua's deity in the fourth century arguments rests upon the idea that God, yod heh does not change. And now with the Christian church as a whole, not everyone within the Christian church, but as a general rule, what the modern Christian church says today is, no, God's holiness changed. So which one is it? Do we rest the Trinitarian doctrine on the fact that God does not change and then say that he does change when it comes to holiness? Or are we consistent across the board and say that God simply does not change and therefore his holiness does not change? I want you to jump in here just in case you have something to say and then I have one more point I got to make. Well, I, I mean, it's it ties back to the whole Andy Stanley thing, you know, that Christian, Christianity needs to unhitch itself, you know, from right. from the Old Testament. Um, and you wonder, what kind of things was he encountering where he had to make that point? Was it people asking about God's law and its applicability and that they were, you know, and he's like, no, don't go that don't go that way. Don't go that way. You know, you have freedom, you know. So actually, so when it comes to Andy Stanley, and I know that uh, we obviously have interacted with uh, with Apologia Studios and um, Jeff Durbin, but I have to hand it to Jeff Durbin. When Andy Stanley came out and said that we need to unhitch, Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, Jeff Durbin debated him on this and did an excellent job showing that, no, you can't, this is a, a horrific thing to try to say for Christians. <clears throat> so there was some explanation. I didn't know they, they actually debated like live, back and forth. Yeah, it was I mean it was a Skype debate and there was a moderator, but yeah, oh, wow, there was cool. a debate. And uh, so obviously uh, Jeff 
Durbin and has disagreed with us. You know, he Jeff has said that if you keep the Sabbath on a Saturday, uh, that you are ca- then you're in capital H heretic land. Okay, well, uh, I disagree obviously with <laughs> yeah, Jeff that's on that. A, that's like one of the most foolish. It's such a foolish thing to say. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that there's. I think that I would assume, and maybe I shouldn't, but I would assume that that uh, Mr. Durbin is would take a passage like "Don't judge anyone on days," uh, you know, on on celebration of days. I think that he would take that to mean the Sabbath. Well, if that's the case, then is he judging us? On, okay, we're down in a different rabbit hole now. But the question that I would have. Uh, coming back around to this idea that Yeshua can change the Sinai covenant. I said that God's holiness doesn't change. Someone a long time ago asked this wonderful question. Well, obviously God's holiness changes because you have people, with, you know, Adam and Eve, their children certainly had to, you know, at one point uh, people were intermarrying with relatives that once the Torah comes along, you're, you know, you're not allowed to do that anymore. So obviously God's holiness changed. Well, this is a great p- point to ask, but the, the answer is not everyone is, is, uh, held in the same, in the same regard. In other words, for instance, the priest can go into the holy place and eat the showbread, right? The priest can, uh, partake in some of the sacrifices. If I go into the holy place and I grab the showbread, or if I eat one of the sacrifices, it's not allowed, right? This is one of the reasons that King David, when he goes in with his men and, and the priest asks, have you been with a woman in the past three days or whatever? And he says, no. What does he do? He gives him the showbread. And this is a big controversy, right? Among a lot of different people. But the point is, is that if the temple was standing today and it was legitimate temple, let's just pretend for a second, okay? Or even say that before Christ comes, I walk into the standing temple, you know, in, in 55 AD, and I walk in and I grab the showbread and I take a bite. What's going to happen? They're going to kill me, right? But the point is, is that even in God's eyes, it's not right, but it's, it's fine for the priest to do that. So there's different, different people. And I mean, obviously, for instance, uh, a law like uh, the laws of menstruation would not apply to me because I'm a man, but they apply to women, right? When the temple's standing. So God has different categories of people and and different laws for different people. This is one of the arguments that people who are, are against one Torah theology say, oh, well, the Gentiles are in a different category than the Jews. The problem is, is that we don't see this anywhere in the Torah. Anything else on this before we move on to the second question? Nope. nope. That took a lot longer than I thought, which is really good, because honestly... Caleb's always worried we don't have enough material. I'm serious, man. I saw this. I was like, there's no way we're going to fill an hour. That's that's always the goal that I hit. But, you know, if we went 30 minutes, it wouldn't be a big deal. Okay. Old Testament. Now, Zane sent us a video. This is a, this is a, just a, this is brutal. It was so brutal. And I, and he said this made me sick, sick to my stomach. And I see why. Basically, the pastor was saying, look, we're not un- under under the Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament. He said, so we're not under the Old Testament. We have the New Testament, the New Covenant. Now, this is his language, not mine, by the way. And so this is what we're under. Should we rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles? No, 
because uh, it, it's the history of bringing us under the new covenant. But we're not under the old covenant, which is the Old Testament. So the question that instantaneously pops into my head is how many Christians believe that the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. You know, my father touches on this a lot in uh, What is the New Covenant? Or actually, I think it's called The New Covenant, God's Promise uh, Fulfilled Now. It's on to our resource. It's a four-lecture four series. And, and honestly, it is dynamite. If you don't have it, it is worth... I, I, think, I think we're charging 24 bucks for it for four sessions. It is well worth the money. G- get it. It's, I mean, honestly... It's really good. Um, I've watched it probably five or six times. I, re- I really think it's one of his better teachings. Um, anyway, with that said, the idea that the Old Testament is the quote-unquote Old Covenant, I think is one of the large mistakes that modern Christianity as a whole has come under. What do you think? What do you think of when you think of Old Testament aligned with old covenant right yeah well it, it it's a I, that's a, something a history i'd be just a fine question a footnote question on that when did bibles start to be produced where you had the every you know genesis to malachi called old testament and then new testament like i wonder wonder if like the first King James Bibles had that. I, I really don't know. That's uh... This, by the way, is one of the reasons that the teachers at Torah Resource and the Torah Resource staff as a whole try to stay away from the terms Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament puts into people's minds, first of all, that it's old and not as good. Right. Whereas the new one is better. New and improved, right? And that's not the case. And second of all, because people, for some reason, equate Old Testament with Old Covenant, which, I mean, pastors should know better. First of all, there's six covenants, if I'm counting correctly. There's six covenants within the Tanakh, which would be the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when a pastor says Old Covenant, I have to assume that they're saying the Sinai Covenant. But if... but. The Abrahamic covenant it would be wrapped up in there. The Davidic covenant and even the new covenant in Jeremiah, right? So the, the idea of old covenant and, you know, one of the points that should be made is that old covenant is only used once in the entire, the term old covenant is only used once in the entire apostolic or New Testament. And that's in 2 Corinthians. I wonder what Tilling will do with that passage. Well, that'll be interesting to see. Well, he's getting. But basically, you, yeah. we have Second Corinthians three fourteen, is where we have it. Um, and for example, he's talking about um, Moses who would cover up his face, right? Right. But it says in First or Second Corinthians three fourteen, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant. The same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. I'm reading from the ESV. <clears throat> is it taken away is not the covenant, but it's the veil. Right. So it says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So 
I'm un, I understand what he means is, oh, I should read verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the question is this, is not, the, the problem is not in what, with what people are reading. The problem is with the human heart and the blindness of the person who's doing the interpreting. My dad's done work on and this. So and, when, when yeah. one per, when, when someone's heart is enlightened with the Holy Spirit, which is the, the activation or, or uh, the, the uh, realization or whatever word you want to call it of the promised Messiah. That, yeah, uh, yeah. Of the, the Torah written on the heart. Then there's a coherency between the heart and mind of the reader with reading Moses. In other words, that, that's James, right? That's where the person sees the Torah as a mirror reflecting back the person. But the person who's hard-hearted and unrepentant, they're not going to see their own sin when they read the Torah. They're going to see, probably they're going to just uh, twist it and establish their own righteousness and condemn other people for sin because they're, they're twisted. But the problem is not in what, with what they're reading. The problem is in their twisted, dark human heart. So, um, Yeah, the veil is, is reading the Torah without... Without the Messiah in mind. My father's done work on this, yeah, and, and yeah. you can read this in, in the articles on Torah Resource, um, what is the veil and, and all those kind of things. And one of the things that my, my dad does in, in that article is he talks about how Paul uses the word old, old man, old, you know, right. is, is probably one of the, the key ones that we can go to, old man, old covenant. And every time that we he uses language like this, he's talking about before coming to Christ, before having faith in the Messiah. So the idea of old covenant is reading the Torah without Yeshua, without faith in Yeshua. And what uh, does that do? Yeah, generally that that's right. But I, I would also even add another element, is that the word for old, this is that word paleo, right, basic, where we get the word paleo diet or paleo Hebrew. Um, if you look it up in the BDAG, I mean, one of the meanings, the primary meaning is being in existence for a long time. That's and that's where BDAG, which is the main Greek lexicon for apostolic writings, is it. It just means the covenant that's been in existence for a long time. Um, so, yes, we'd have to differentiate. Paul's using it as a general kind of idea. Uh, Caleb, you're right. You, there are multiple britot or covenants in. Uh, the Tanakh. But yeah, this is a verse where people, they're driving down the street and they're, it's like the tire hits a rut and boom, boom, and they crash their car into a tree, you know. Well, the funny because thing is, is they that they think new- it means that right. this is somehow equals obsolescence. The thing is, is that the new covenant is the Sinai covenant written on the heart. Yeah, the change is external condemning, external word of God that's in human language but external defining sin and actually condemning the sinner even when the sinner doesn't acknowledge his own sin he right. stands condemned because right. if God's law represents God's <clears throat> holiness and his standards his righteousness his and so it a, a person doesn't have to know <laughs> And, and fully be aware of their own depravity for them to stand condemned before God's law. Um, 
But on the flip side, what, what Jeremiah talks about is that there's a time where, because Jeremiah, even earlier in the, in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 17, he talks about how the, the human heart is corrupt and twisted, who can know it, right? And he talks about the, the living waters, the mikveh Yisrael, the hope of Israel, and the, and the living waters of, of new hope and new life in God. And in 30, chapter 31, he gets in great detail that the Torah will be written on the hearts of his people. What an amazing promise. Right. I mean, you think back to Moshe, Moshe in the wilderness, and the people time and time again, they're, oh, you know, you brought us out here to die. We, we, had, we had it nice in Egypt, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you brought us out here to die. So think about Moshe. You know, Moshe has hope. <laughs> Joshua has hope. They, and, and Caleb have hope. They, they, they're like, look, God promises. We just got to go do it. They, there's no, they don't have an internal uh, kick against, against what God is doing. But the rest of these people, for the most part, are kicking against it. And you'd think that you could be Moses, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb praying like, Lord, such put a heart in them that they would love you, right? I mean, I think, he, is it in numbers? He says, oh, that they would have a heart to to uh, follow after me. Um, with, with, the, with the anointing of the 70 elders in numbers, it says, oh, that they were all... Uh, would that God make all his people prophets, right? What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about humanity has a problem. Just because people were flesh and blood, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did not exempt them from that problem. That problem is the sin problem. It's a problem of uh, darkness, of being selfish, of being prideful, of seeking, uh, being idolatrous, all this stuff. All the, all the transgressions that God points out in the Torah are natural to the old man. Those are natural behaviors. That's why they have to be commanded. God has to reveal and clarify for us in human language the path of light. Because, you know, without it, without that external corrective, without the shepherding staff and rod of our great shepherd, we would just be bumbling around in the darkness. And so the revelation of God's word externally was a, the first part of God's salvation history. But the transition then and the creation of the new heart, where like in Psalm 119, the, the theme or, you know, the resounding repetitive motif throughout that psalm and other psalms like Psalm 1, for example, right, is the, the believer whose desire is to abide in God's word, to seek the things of the kingdom first and foremost, to trust him for all things, and that this is no different than the walk of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's no different than the walk of Moses. And, you know, go to the Hebrews 11 list of all the, all the faithful. Um, and that's, we, we are in continuity with that tradition. You know, and, and that tradition did not shift with the resurrection of Yeshua. What changed is that the gospel now was to go out in great power to the nations of the world, to be translated into so many different languages, and to um, just glorify who Yeshua is. 
to, to glorify the truth of God as the creator, as the one who elected is Abraham and Israel and the Davidic line and to prepare for the incarnation of his son. You know, that, that is not just a message for Jews only. And so we're on this side of it. We see it as, uh, you know, 2000 years of the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. Right. Um, but as you pointed out, Caleb, at the beginning of the show, Paul says this is not to be understood independently of what Abraham believed. The difference is just in power and and scope, but that's not but that's not a function of men doing. That's what God waited, right? Even with Yeshua's resurrection and ascension, there was right. still it was, still wasn't time. Yeshua told him, "Wait in Jerusalem, you'll receive power from on high." Okay. The father waited until that Shavuot because that was his good pleasure to do that. We got some great comments that we can address in the chat room real quick. Ignition says, so the Christian church is condemned because they don't know yet continue in their, their sin. No, that's not what I've said. That's not what Rob said. In fact, I would reject that fully. The fact of the matter is, is that you have teachers who have learned from teachers who have taught something. And keep in mind, the Christian church as a whole believes in a significant, I mean, I, I say this almost every show now, believes in a significant amount of the Torah, right? You ask uh, uh, anyone who's sitting in the pews of a Christian church, is it okay uh, to commit adultery? They're going to say, I mean, 99.9% .9 of people are going to say no. Is it okay to murder? No. Is it okay to lie? No. Is it okay to gossip? No. I mean, just go down the list of of, of uh, transgressions with the uh, with the Torah. They're going to say no. This so what we're what we're looking at is application. So, for instance, if I ask someone like Jeff Durbin, Jeff Durbin uh, has said, "Well, we keep the the Passover." He says that he says, "Well, we keep the Passover," but Paul tells us now we keep it in our heart. So he believes that the application of keeping that command has changed. Uh, R.C. Sproul would be a good example of the Sabbath. R.C. Sproul was a Sabbatarian. However, he believed the application of that law changed to Sunday. So the question that we have, and the que and the first question that I uh, that we posed was, does Yeshua have the authority to change the Sinai Covenant? And my point is, is that if Yeshua is God, which I fully believe he is, he's yod heh vav -Hey, come in the flesh on earth. Okay, if Yeshua is God, and God says in the Torah... This is a statute forever. It's an eternal covenant between me and my people. Then can God come in the flesh and say, never mind. I wasn't telling the truth there. I said forever. I don't mean forever. And my point is, is no, that's not the case. So I think that, the, that as a whole, Christian commentators and the Christian church as a whole, the modern Christian church, and even the Christian church pretty quick after, you know, and this gets into the debate of whether or not the Fiscus Judaicus actually influenced these three laws of the Torah. I think they, I think it did, but that's a whole different conversation. The point is, is that uh, I think that the Christian church has gotten these three things wrong. And you know what? It's not the first time that the Christian church has gotten something wrong. We're going to talk about baptism here in a few minutes. Pedo-baptism was a, was a standard within Christianity for a long time, up until the Reformation. It wasn't until the 1600s that all of a sudden the, the pedo-baptism was fiercely, fiercely fought against. 
And guess Caleb, what? You've researched that way more than I have, you know, the, uh, what the reformers were dealing with um, in terms of her talk about capital H's or, you know, different heresies or things that, you know, once once they created this space, we can think about the scripture and interpret it independent of the Catholic Church. What kind of ideas crept in? Um, and so I'm going to lean on you, you know, for for that history. Okay, we got a Unitarian in the uh, chat room. Uh, keep your heresy to yourself, please. Uh, Remind me, I don't even know what the, I don't know what the... Uh, well, he says, he is the Christ of God, the Son of God, not God. Um, he is the offspring of David, not true. The Messiah had to come, uh, had to be the seed of David, not the angel of the Lord. Um, yeah, so this is, I mean, this is Unitarianism slash... Uh, bordering on Arianism, which was fought uh, fiercely in the fourth century. And um, yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> you know, so we, I was just, this, this in the one year Torah portion, this last week we finished Genesis, Vayechi. And that's where uh, Jacob slash Israel goes to Egypt, right? And he's reunited with um, Joseph, of course. And, and Joseph brings in. Um, Menashe and Ephraim. And Jacob's like, yeah, these are my sons now. These are my sons now. Uh, not only that, Ephraim, who's the second born, he's the first born. And Joseph's like, no, wait a minute. Menashe's for, you know, no. Right. No, Ephraim, they're mine. Every, any other kids you have will be yours, but these are going to be mine, and they're numbered among the tribes of Israel. Boom. Why, why don't we protest that? Why don't we protest Israel's, Jacob Israel's decree right there? How could he, how could he call Ephraim the firstborn? Right. How could he take children that were not his and say, they're mine, they're not yours? Right. See, I think we, that, that this idea of reckoning Yeshua as a seed of David, uh, people are ignorant of of the ancient you know how you know it, it comes down to the degree power of the father it's like where isaac blessed um jacob dressed up like esau and right. went in and isaac blessed him and then later esau comes in and says wait a minute i'm esau what did you do and he's like well i already said the blessing he's surely going to be blessed he's and then Esau weeps. Don't you have a blessing left over for me? Uh, well, yeah, you're going to be servant to him. <laughs> you know, right? It's it's he can't go back on this, right? Uh, and which so is such an interesting thing to me because as a father, you know, my son comes to me, he tricks me, I can't see whatever. I think okay, yeah. I give the blessing to him. My other son comes and says, "Don't you have a blessing for me?" I'd be like, "Yeah, sure. You're going to be great too." No, there's something about the it's the irreversible declaration of these fathers that are that are, um, and the the power of of their words. And it has to do with authority. It has to do with what the family unit was like, and the integrity of the person with with their speech. Oh, hang on just a second. We gotta stop here. Okay. You know, I, 
normally, I don't see. I, I normally I just let this go, but this guy Solomon in the chat room. I mean, this shows just a total lack of knowledge of history. The Godman hypostatic doctrine was instituted in 451 A.D. Um, that is so far from the truth. The Nicene Creed was created in 325, first of all. And leading up to the Nicene Creed, which was a council brought together to talk about Arianism and to talk about uh, who God was in relation to uh, in relation to Jesus, who Jesus was in relation to the Father. These debates came about why? Not because they weren't happening already, but because uh, because Augustine fiercely debates against uh, Arius, which brings about a council, which is the precursor to Nicene. Learn your history. It's, I mean, this is not hard history to find. Go to the, you can go to the library and pick up a book. Well, not only that, the gospel, you have to reject, start cutting books out of the Bible, you know, and verses. And not only that, but the thing is, is that the original Nicene Creed, and I know the Nicene Creed that most people quote today is not the original one that came out of the 325, but guess what one of the last verses in the actual creed is? And we believe in the Holy Spirit. So the, uh, once again, binatarianism at best? No, I'm sorry, you're wrong. The idea uh, that, binat that binatarianism was what the Nicene Creed uh, folks believed in is simply wrong. So, I mean, the idea that, that you don't have Yeshua as God, as a theology, <laughs> until for what did he say? 451? Oh, he wants to debate. I wouldn't debate somebody who didn't have their, their basic facts uh, 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 about history, right? I mean, come on. Um, okay, I've had enough of this. We're just going to... Uh, we're going to put that user in timeout for a bit. Okay. Um, let's move on. Are we even going to get to baptism? You want to get to baptism today, or should we save it for next well, time? Well, we might need to punt it well i we have a we could shift we could save that and we could do the e email from sylvia or did we have another email yeah so we have one from evelyn evelyn who's let's in the do, chat room let's do evelyn's she says um she says fantastic show here's the question i asked in the chat room first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness amen what is the difference between being forgiven of sins and being cleansed from unrighteousness? That's a great question. First John, let's go to my father's commentary on the Johannine epistles. Unless you want, do you want to talk first? Go. Well, let's read. I'd like to reread it, but I want to include eight and 10. So eight, first John one, eight through 10. If we say we have no sin, this is ESV. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Boom. That's big. Yeah. The truth being in us now is is a core point for John. If we confess our sins, what does that mean? That means the truth is in us, and we see accurately, because we've seen the, the mirror of the Torah, we see what kind of man we are, or woman, and now we see God's truth, and we confess God's truth and our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is reaffirming something we learn from the actual Torah about God that he loves truth, he is kind, He is uh, full of kindness and grace, as it says, um, 
long-suffering, preserving um, chesed or loving kindness to those who love him, right? This is Exodus, uh, you know, where Moses goes up before he gets the second, after the golden calf, when he reveals his name. Um, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we're making him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So that both the reason I wanted to do that whole context is because verse eight and verse 10 have the bookends of the truth in us and paralleled with his word in us. So the, the, the deal breaker, and this ties right back, Caleb, what we're talking about, the Jeremiah 31 is God's word in us is God's truth in us. Those are both saying the same thing. They're just, they're synonymous to say, God's word is in a person is no different than saying the truth is in the person. And that means there is a accurate picture of who God is in his holiness, in his justice, in his loving kindness, who he is as revealed in the word of God. And an accurate picture of my position as a sinner in need of redemption that I'm one who has transgressed his holiness and that that is coupled with the desire by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to aspire to what God says, be holy because I am holy. So now I, my natural new creation inclination is to desire to be holy like God is holy. It's the, it's Abba father, right? It's like, it's, um, it's you are my father, your correct. I accept your correction, your discipline. Teach me the ways of your word. Teach me the, the values of your kingdom. Teach me your commandments. You know, forgive me my sins, forgive the sins of my youth. Right. That's like Psalm 25. This is all the, the core initial sproutings, right. Of the new covenant heart here. So now, okay, that is now let's zero back into the email about what's the difference between forgiveness of sins and cleanse, cleanliness from unrighteousness. You want me to go? Yeah, I just I talk too much, right? No, not at all. In fact, actually, we got uh, some great uh, questions in the chat room as well. Uh, for instance, First John four fifteen, which we'll get to in just a second, because that's a great question. Okay, so my father writes this. By the way, you know, I I didn't go through this study with him when he was doing it. I was too busy. Um, but the book itself is actually really good. Uh, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the verb to forgive used here generally describes the canceling of debt and the restoration of the one uh, who was in debt. This likewise highlights, likewise highlights the metaphor of slavery, which Paul uses to denote the unbeliever's slavery uh, to sin, Romans 6, 17 and 18. For, for the believer, the debt of sin has been paid and we are free to serve God. The second verb John uses to cleanse us from all unrighteousness speaks to making us holy so that we can have close and enduring fellowship with God. God, in his grace and infinite love, has taken the in, uh, initiative to bring us to him. In order to do so, both the debt of sin had to be paid as well as making us holy, conformed to the likeness of, the, of Yeshua himself. He paid the debt by giving his own son, and he is in the process of making us to be like Yeshua through the work of his Ruach with, within us. So in other words, my father takes this, the two different clauses as justification, and the second clause as sanctification. And I think, I mean, I uh, acquiesce to his, to his wisdom in this. I think that he's right. You know, this is, uh, I'm kind of hammering on it because it's just been fresh on my mind. You know, locally we're on the one-year Torah portion, and 
there is this story, you know, the, the Joseph story is so powerful, you know, it, it's, it's such an amazing, uh, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to say metaphor cause it's real history. It's a type. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but there's, there's a passage where, where Joseph has been in prison for two years. Remember McCate is Parshat McCates after two years. Um, and so two years, there's like from chapter, what is it? 40 to 41 or whatever in Genesis, two years goes by and we don't know anything really. Right. Right. But Pharaoh has the troubling, troubled dream and no one can interpret, interpret it. And they remember, right. Oh, that's right. There's a guy in prison and he interpreted our dreams and they came true. So, Genesis 41, 14 says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him in out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Okay. So I, I love that verse because it's, it's, it reminds me of this basic theological picture. I, now I acknowledge, I'm not saying this is how to interpret the scripture, but when Pharaoh calls Joseph and they bring him out of the pit, the pit is the prison he's been in. As far as Pharaoh's concerned, Pharaoh's not interested in anything pertaining to why Joseph was in prison, how long he was there, whether it was just or unjust. It doesn't matter. Yeah, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Boom, you're out of prison. And the funny thing is that he instantaneously puts him over Potiphar. Yeah. Who put yeah, him in prison? It, he, 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 but he shaves himself and changes clothes. So they, then all of a sudden they prepare him to come before the King. So the, I see that as kind of a, a reminder. It's a picture. Uh, again, I'm, this is not the, the historical understanding of what the passage means because it just literally happened. But the, the coming out of the pit is likened to debt paid. You're, you're not in prison anymore. Boom. The, the shaving and the changing of clothes to come before the king is, to me, remind uh, a kind of mnemonic, I guess you could say, a way of remembering that the sanctification as a separate part, right? Because the Pharaoh could just say, okay, let Joseph out of the pit and send him on his way, right? The, the, the shaving and the cleanly, the changing his clothes represents a transition of of bodily care and attention and presentation because he's going to go before the king. Right. And I see that as a sanctification. So again, I, I I'm just saying this Genesis 41, 14 to me is a little snapshot of that kind of picture of coming out of the prison, being called out of the prison is, is means the debts, the debts paid and, and it's not even considered. Pharaoh's not, doesn't care. It's just because by his authority, Joseph comes out and everybody downstream from Pharaoh obeys. Right. The guy makes the call. He tells the, the soldiers, the soldiers go tell the prison, key, you know, whatever the chain of command, no one, you know, no one tried to keep Pharaoh or, or no one tried to keep Joseph in prison and said, oh, he hasn't paid. No one protested. No one says he hasn't paid his debt. It was done. And then, of course, the, the sanctification. Um, Real good, quick, good I want to go. I want to go to this reference that somebody asked about. Before uh, I start getting a bunch of emails from uh, from Unitarians saying that I'm that I don't like opposition, 
the reason that I put this person out of t- in timeout was because they were uh, promoting their own YouTube channel within the chat room. And um, sometimes I put people in timeout to cool them off for a little bit so that they can get back on track. Okay, we have people disagree with us all the time in the chat room. Uh, so let's go. And one of the reasons I wanted to say that is because we're going to hit back on this real quick because this is how I see this. First John 4.15 says... And this was asked in the chat room, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Is that the passage that they wanted? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. That's 415. That is 415. Let's make sure. First John 415. Yes. Okay. Um, I see this as the, uh, I see this once again as Trinitarian doctrine in perfect uh, econ. Economic think of the, working. Yeah, think of the Gospel of John, uh, too, you know. So that. we confess Yeshua as the Son of God. The Spirit abides in us, which turns us to God. And we abide, therefore, in God. We are able to be reconciled unto the Father because the debt has been paid. And therefore, we're able to commune with God. We see the... I mean, this is a perfect... This is a perfect verse. Koinonia is the word in the Greek is the fellow right. is we have fellowship, right? Right. So uh, I, I see this as a perfect uh, example of the economy, which is what we call the economy of the economy of God or the economy of the Trinity is how God works in self, how the tr- Trinity works in salvation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is, I mean, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. It's been a good show. I we never made it to baptism, which is the name of the show. The name of this show two eighty five. Can you go is, back and change? I can change it. I'll change it once we're done. Uh, <laughs> it's called on baptism, so I don't know what we're going to call it. But this just shows. Oops, this just shows that we can have a uh, totally different topic than we had planned on. Okay, we do what we can. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I want to play one or two more uh, uh, sound clips. Sponsored by Ace Religious Supply, where they say, if we don't got it, it ain't holy. And let's see here. Let's do a song. Oh, that wasn't it. I'm sorry, that wasn't it. Self- oh, I did four. Did I? No, that's not it either. Huh. It's the wrong one. I don't know. All right. I'm all over the place here. My, my soundboard's all messed up. Um, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say before we go? No, great, great, uh, discussion and yeah. Will we do baptism next week? Yeah. We'll, we'll come back and we'll look at baptism next week. Uh, Christina sent us, uh, four questions that she has, which is really good. And then we got an email this morning right before we came on air, which I said we'd talk about also on whether how we know whether or not we have the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, it, it was a great slew of questions. That'll go well with baptism. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right. Well, we hope that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.